This episode of The Yarn is sponsored by Heinemann and their professional book, Reading to Make a Difference, using literature to help students speak freely, think deeply, and take action, by Lester L. Laminick and Catherine Kelly. Colby talked with the authors about the book. We wrote Reading to Make a Difference as a way to help um, provide educators and librarians with a curated list of diverse books around different topics. And so we've selected books that we believe through the guidance of a teacher with some read aloud and some conversation can result in the notion that children have an awareness that they didn't have for that will lead them to the opportunity for taking action to try to make the world a better place. Inclusion matters. And reading to make a difference will help make your classroom or library a more inclusive place. Visit Heinemann.com to learn more and order a copy. I'm A.S. King. I'm talking about Dig today from Dutton, which is Penguin Random House Books. Welcome to The Yarn, a school library journal production. I'm Colby Sharp. In this episode, we hear from author A.S. King about her latest young adult novel, Dig. I sat down with her last fall at the National Council for Teachers of English annual conference in Baltimore. A huge thank you to NCTE for providing me with a room to record episodes for this podcast. Recently, A.S. King won the Prince Medal for Dig. In this episode of The Yarn, Ms. King talks about Dig, white middle-class racism, and the role of children's literature in society today. Dig is a book about three generations of a family, um, a white family in Pennsylvania, and, and it's sort of an exploration of their lives separately. There's, there's different, there's, there's about nine different points of view. Um, so it's an exploration of those three different generations, like how they, how they work, how each character is working in their family unit. Um, but it's really um, an exploration of whiteness and how racism, like polite middle-class racism, is kind of fecklessly um, passed from generation to generation without white people really noticing that they're white and what that really means in this country, especially in this country. Um, And then it's also an exploration of potatoes and how potatoes um, really made the white supremacy possible in the Western world. Uh, And I'll let that there, but that was the fun part for me. That's what I got obsessed with, if it makes sense. That's how I start a book. Well, white middle class racism is not noticing that you have privilege. I mean, that's really the beginning of it. The beginning of white middle-class racism is, is the guy at T-Mobile who was there, and we were talking, and something, he's a white guy, and um, he said something about, well, privilege. I wish I had that white privilege. Man, I wish I had some of that today. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, yeah, you do. You just said that, you know? And he just didn't, he, you know, the idea just isn't comfortable for white people because it's, an, it's a zero-sum game to so many people. Well, if I don't have a thing, that means, or if other people get a thing, then I, it t- gets taken away from me. Um, and I'm a woman, so, <laughs> and so, and in this business, that means something. Um, and so I, I can't see things as zero-sum games. Otherwise, I, I would, um, I don't know how my brain would survive that, you know what I mean? I just have to create, and I have to make what I want to make and say what I want to say. 
<clears throat> so in the case of racism, um, I wanted to I wanted to talk about it somehow, and I, I couldn't kind of get my head around how. And so I went to Kid Lit Con in Wichita, Kansas. And I had dinner with one of my favorite librarian people from here in Baltimore, actually, and met one of her friends as well, who's from kind of my area-ish out near Philadelphia. And ended up hanging out, having a few drinks at the bar, and there was a group of white people behind me watching um, some sport. I don't know what sport it was. And when a goal got scored or something, they flipped out, and they were really rowdy, loud, and I will say obnoxious. They were a, it was an obnoxious crowd. And I turned around to look at them. And I should say, the woman from Philadelphia is a woman of color. Um, and so we were talking, and I was writing this book about whiteness. I kept saying that, but I couldn't get a, gri a grip on it. And this is what I'm talking about when it comes to polite middle class racism. So these white people cheered on their team and just wouldn't stop being loud. And I turned around, looked at them, and I turned back to Pam, and I said, ugh, white people. That's how privileged of me to look at white people and go, ugh, white people. That's nuts, but that's how far away from my privilege or my, what I thought anti-racism was. I mean, and I'm only, I'm nearly 50 years old. This is a lifelong journey. So, but for me, it passes down and, it, and you know, you just, you get it because no one talks about it. A little bit like trauma. You continue to keep it because no one talks about it, you know? Um, and our world for me, like we have become so distracted that that to me as humans, if we're not talking about things as important as race and communication and emotion and trauma, we are on a really bad track. And especially, again, especially in this country. This country, I lived, I lived abroad for uh, most of my adult life. So we are a very violent country. This is a country who was, that was founded on violence and trauma. Trauma is in the soil and we don't talk about it because then we'd have to talk about slavery and that would be really, really, really difficult. But what can we do? And what can you do as a fifth grade teacher, you ask? Okay. Um, well, I think one of the things as well is the idea of what racism is. Okay, so we have to define it. That's a wonderful thing to ask people to do because what's really racist is the culture here. This is the white supremacy. So the culture is racist. It's just how it works. As people then, we're biased, or we have bias, right? Um, but I've never argued a racist human being out of being racist. It never works, and including that guy at the T-Mobile store. Never, it didn't work. Um, and I think the biggest thing is to talk about it. So with younger people, talking about finding texts, it's so much, so many books, finding texts that, that challenge um, their idea of whiteness, because if you're looking at same as me, a school district that's a majority of wh white kids or white people, um, you know, it's been difficult. One of the things I've done for the last sort of three or four years, I have guinea pig schools that I, I test things out on, you know, good librarian friends or teacher friends, and then I went in and I started telling white kids that they were white. And that was really where this book started. And I was able to say, white kids in the room. And I said, oh, any people of color in the room, I am not here to make you feel uncomfortable right now, but I have to say something to the white people in the room. And of course the place gets dead silent. And I go, okay, white, white people, you ready? And they're like, all right. And I go, you're white. And they don't know what to do with that at first. And they're like, like they think I'm calling them racist immediately. They think I'm saying racist when all I'm saying is you're white, right? Um, but then I get, them, I get them to think about what does it mean to be white in America? 
It's a really important question. And I mean, I've asked that to, to young people in middle schools. So that's not quite fifth grade, but I have a feeling fifth graders could handle it. I know because I, I have kids too. So um, uh, I think it's just like anything else. Same as trauma, same as SEL, you know, social and emotional literacy. It, a lot of people think social and emotional literacy ends at third grade. Uh, it shouldn't. It should go for the rest of your life, to be honest, you know? Um, and it's the same as the, the conversation about race and whiteness, because I'm, this is a lifelong thing. Like, I will never be a, the perfect white person. I'm not. I'm not going to be the perfect white person. But in this country, it's very important. It's also, to me, very important to tell the truth about history. So when you are teaching, you know, um, about, let's say, I mean, okay, my husband's a teacher as well, English teacher. And he recently told me a story about one of his students, um, and they were doing Columbus. It was Columbus Day at that time. I, I can notice I can't put Columbus and Day in my mouth at the same time, but I did it just now, just for you. Um, but the one student said, because um, they didn't have off at this school, he said he tried to like challenge his sixth grade teacher about the truth about Christopher Columbus, and the teacher turned to him and said, "Oh, you're going to have to wait for high school and college for that. Let's not." So that's, that's what we can do. So we can start telling the truth. Once we start telling the truth about history, once we start naming chapters about this, the, the genocide of, of indigenous people in this country, the chapter in our textbook in Pennsylvania is clash of cultures on the prairie. And it's like, no, that wasn't a clash of cultures on the prairie. That was complete colonialism. It was complete genocide. It was completely planned. It was horrific, and we should talk about it. Can you talk about it with, with fourth graders? I don't ask Germany. They talk about the Holocaust with fourth graders, and it works. So, but we don't, because as a country, we haven't come to a place where we all agree yet. That I mean, I'm sure we all agree slavery was bad. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not all of us. But, but have we owned it? No, we have not owned it. Well, I didn't own any slaves. I understand. My family apparently didn't either. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We have to own the trauma that has, has, has basically carried 400 years through our culture. If you want to know why we are where, we're, where we are racially, it's because we've been ignoring this conversation from the very beginning. Jim Crow just buried, like, buried slavery for 100 years. We, didn't, we weren't allowed to talk, but they were free. They should be happy now. Right? Same as some middle class kid with a new pair of sneakers should feel happy even if they're depressed. doesn't make sense. Look, I did want, it's going to be my new middle grade book, um, which will come soon. So I've just given away a secret. But there you go. I don't care. There's a new middle grade book. And one of the things I was researching for it was um, how many signers of the Declaration of Independence were slave owners. I can't remember the number right now, but it was actually, it was a school, it was a school, I think it was a sixth grade class, made a website and they had all the signers' names and it was, a, it was obvious, it was well more than a majority. It was, it was a massive majority of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Let me just say that again. I mean, the irony is right there. Own the slaves. And, like, that's something we should teach. We should teach who owned slaves. We should talk about what slavery was, talk about the reality of slavery. We should talk about why slavery was good in the white mind, meaning we can have plantations and free labor. Okay, argue that and ask them to argue that. Well, what if you were the free labor? What if white people were the slaves? What if you were the free labor? Switch it or whatever. To be able to kind of have those larger thoughts, you know, they'd be like, well, that wouldn't happen. Well, what if it did tomorrow? What if it's like, you know, 
Tobin Anderson's landscape with a visible hand, and you know the the vov come in, and and suddenly you are all slaves. Everybody on earth is a slave. You know, anything. You know, just to be able to try and put them in a mindset where it's like understanding what it was really like to live there. Yes, it's great talking about you know, for Ticonderoga or, you know, the crossing of the this or the what. I get it. That's great. But we've got to talk about the truth. You know, it's the same as like when we when we teach Europe, when we teach the humanities and when we teach um, Greek and Roman mythology, it's completely white. It makes no sense. There were people of color all over Europe at the time, all over Europe. We totally white. It became whitewashed, funnily enough, during the transatlantic slave trade. So the fact that um, the transatlantic slave trade, which is the you know, tended to be, well, we'll say America, but the Americas, you know, is what suddenly whitewashed European history. So you see all these, you know, even the statues they have now discovered had pigment on them. They were painted the correct color, but we see them as white marble statues. And so that means we've whitewashed mythology completely. Children's literature at this point, I believe, is a leader in all of this. I think we have we have a massive lead on so many, uh, so many things when it comes to talking about it, at least. Um, but the hope for me, and I don't know, I'm doubting it now, all because I got a letter, of course, from a young person. This is what happens to me. I I think I have some sus, and then I get a letter from a 17-year-old that questions everything I believed, and then I sit with it, and I've been sitting with this for two months. But I was saying my hope is with the kids. My hope is with young people. My hope is with the fact that I just found out that, you know, like, um, you know, there's going to be anti-racist board books. I think Jason Reynolds is involved in a project like that or something like this. And I think, yes, board books, that's where it starts. Okay, racism and bias starts, you know, kids by the age of three already have their biases set, period. They do. Um, it's been proven that basically if we don't, you know, I live in a primarily white town. What am I supposed to do? Find people of color for my kids to play with? Actually, yes. But isn't that me using them? Actually, yes. Um, you know, so that my kids will have it. No, like we have to somehow find a way where, I don't know, we're not so isolated all the time. So books again, I'm going to go back to books. I think the hope is in the fact that um, there's a great book called Not My Idea. And it's a book about whiteness. It's a picture book. Um, and it's, you know, those sorts of books and having them front and center. I mean, if I've learned anything, like um, I have a 12-year-old. Um, and I have a 16-year-old who's passed, but when she was still here, um, and to compare her sister and her views on this stuff to people in her school, it was, it was wildly different because of simply the books that we had in the house and what we talked about and the fact that we talked about slavery and the fact that we talked about these things. So that is where my hope lay. Like, because, and then, so then I get this Twitter message from someone who's like, hey, I see I, in your interview, you say the hope is with the kids. What makes you think it's our responsibility? And I'm like, first of all, I love you. Second of all, I'll get back to you in a few weeks about this. And I haven't yet gotten back to her because I'm like, that is a fantastic question. And it's, it's, it's sort of like the, you know, that idea of, well, look, I'm Generation X. Like I was like, I, we have power to, I feel like I had my power taken away from me before I, before anyone called me a loser 50 times. I had to be called a loser 50 times before I was truly Gen X, right? And, and you know, 
I didn't have, I don't have the money, right? I don't have the money. The money's still in another, somebody else's generation. Um, I don't have the power in certain ways, but I have words and I have this job and I can go into schools and I can talk about stuff and I can tell white kids they're white and ask them to think about it. And if, if five of them go home and their parents say it was BS and they should be proud of their white heritage or whatever, that's fine as long as one of them goes home and their mom and dad go or the guardians go, wow. Never thought of that before. That's cool. Like, so I, I feel like, you know, I have to have that in mind. I have to have in mind that, that young people can do this. Um, and I, I watch my kids do it. So, like, and I mean, I'm doing it at this age, but it's very different. And then I'm looking at the generation above me, and no, it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough. You know, they, my parents are not racist in any way overtly, but we are all biased, period. And I mean all. We are all biased. We all have a bias. And that, that's just how it goes. Um, and if we could all admit that, we'd be a little less sensitive about talking about it. No matter where we're from or what we do, we, we do have biases kind of all over us. So, But I think kids, I don't know. And I think, I, I, think that I, I think it is frustrating and it is sort of almost, I don't want to say depressing, but it is. Because, because, of course, we go, oh, well, you know what? If we just changed education, we could do this, 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 and this. But then you go into administration, and then you go to the, you know, you go get bigger and bigger and get to, you know, the Board of Education and get into, you know, the director of education for the country. And you're like, this, this is not what their aim is. This is not how it's working. We could change schools. We could change schools and, and make them really healthy places for teachers who have the hardest and best and most important job in the entire world. I don't understand... I'm not even going to get into teachers and how y'all are treated because I don't get it. Because um, it is the most important job. And people will argue with me about that. And I'm like, you know what? I said, you know what you should do now? What? Thank a teacher. Because you know what? You wouldn't be able to argue with me like that if it wasn't for a teacher. Because you wouldn't have any confidence. I know that because I taught literacy students. Um, so, so, yeah. I mean, my hopes with the kids. But my hopes with the kids, especially because she asked me that question because that's challenging me. Good. She should know how to challenge me. That's perfect. The more this generation and every generation younger than ours is able to challenge our stuff, the better chance we have of beating this. So I'm at the bar, and there's Pam, right? And Pam says to me, I turn to her and I go, white people. White people, actually. That's what I said. Oh, white people. And she said, leaned in right to my face, and she said, uh, those are your people. And I walked around in a daze for like two or three weeks going, oh, why did I think that I was different or better or anything? Like, that's really judgmental thinking, and it's, like, it's... It's weird. I mean, yeah, okay. I've, I, like, I can understand it just in the basic my influences in my life and where I've lived and you know what I've done, but still, that wasn't healthy because you know. Um, but how did I come to it? You know, it was growing up around people. I and, and just having a mom and dad. But um, my my dad was drafted, so my mom and dad had to go live in Jim Crow, uh, Arkansas, and then Oklahoma in sixty from sixty to sixty three, I think. Um, and so the stories they had were harrowing um, for them. I mean, my mom would be, my mom and dad would be Yankees, you know, in that way. Like they just didn't believe in what was going on down there. And so it was always a subject. 
again, discussion, right? Um, so we would talk about it from time to time. My mom would tell stories. My dad would tell stories. He has a few really great stories about being in the service and having a platoon that was mixed, you know, in, when it comes to race and where they were and were not allowed to eat and how their, you know, sub, you know their um, commanding officer had them all get up and march when they wouldn't serve, you know, the, the black soldiers um, in their platoon, and that's a great story. Isn't that a great story for an old white dude to be telling? No offense, Dad, if you're listening. The point is, is that that's great, but how did it, you know, how did it change the world? Well, he told me. And because he told me, and my mom told me, that's how I came to this work. Because I have never been able to handle it. I have been a white woman my whole life with people turning to me and saying, random stuff out the side of their mouth that is so unacceptable. I mean, what? I married a man from another country. I had people saying, oh, immigrants. I'm looking at them going, um, I got two in my house. Could you just not, you know? Um, so that's where I came to it. It's a passion of telling the truth, um, wanting young people to look at the truth. Um, you know, like look at the truth of why you like rap music. I love hip hop and I love rap music. But I like it for what it is. I know what it is, and I know it's not. I know it's not reflective of my culture, right? I, I've been pulled over by police, I think, four times. I'm 50 years old. I have never been given a ticket. I've been pulled over four times and let go four times. If that doesn't say something, and I'm not that good looking, and I did not from any money, <laughs> so I don't know, you know. So it's, it's, you know, yeah. So in a way, I came to this work because my parents talked. Because they, they talked. And now I talk. And, that's, and my kids then were even more just fiercely, um, very fiercely aware of the white supremacy. That's the thing, is the awareness that, oh, we live in this. And this is what that means. So they were very aware of the truth, and so, or are very aware of the truth. Um, and then hopefully that just will pass down. But that's a long game. That's where my hope is, though. A huge thank you to A.S. King for helping me talk about difficult topics. Thank you to Heinemann Publishing for sponsoring this episode. A huge shout-out to my co-host, Travis Yonker, for helping me edit today's show. If you have an idea for a season or episode of The Yarn, shoot us an email, theyarnpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Colby Sharp. Thanks for listening.